The Fanboy, episode 107. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 107 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? It has certainly been a very interesting week for yours truly, because on Tuesday I found out that not only had my daughter been infested with lice, thanks to there being three girls with lice in her classroom, But so, uh, apparently she passed it on to my son, her little brother, and my wife. So on Tuesday, all three of my nearest and dearest had to spend like four hours at a de-licing clinic here in New York to try to deal with this infestation, all while I was actually auditioning a couple of new guitarists for my band, and I kind of had to be mentally in two places at once. And then yesterday, Wednesday... We had to spend the whole day going through all of our stuff and washing and cleaning everything out to help with this freaking lice infestation at Casa Robles. Freaking, I I was just tempted to burn every item of cloth in my daughter's room, but apparently that would have been overkill. So there was just a lot of laundry and a lot of insanity yesterday and neither one of my kids could go to school and my wife couldn't go to work because they were advised to kind of keep away from people to make sure that the lice, that all of the eggs had been properly ridden from their very uh, precious scalps. And in the middle of that, I had to go to the lice place and have them check me, because the natural assumption, of course, is if the three of them got it, that means I have to have it. But your boy got lucky. I do not have lice. My hair is fine. My scalp is fine. Who knows, maybe lice just don't like thinning hair, I don't know. But either way, I somehow managed to get out of this unscathed, and I have survived to bring you episode 107 and talk about a whole bunch of really cool stuff, which, <clears throat> coincidentally, it's all—it's almost entirely DC-related, what I want to talk to you about today, because a lot has gone on, including stuff that I didn't get to talk about last week because I focused a lot, almost, I mean, pretty much exclusively on Star Wars. And truth be told, full disclosure, last week I kind of ran out of time. There was more stuff I wanted to discuss, but I was kind of under the gun time-wise, so I ended up just keeping it to more or less a single-topic show. And this time I'm going to hit a a slightly wider variety of things. And I don't think it's going to be quite as short, but you know what? Instead of talking about what I'm going to be talking about, let's go ahead and start talking, shall we? So this morning, Birds of Prey gave us a new trailer. We got a new look at Kathy Yan and Margot Robbie's Birds of Prey. And I got to tell you, I was very impressed. You know, I it, this movie in general, I mean, it's not something that's hugely on my radar. Like if it wasn't a DC movie... I probably wouldn't be rushing out to go see this one. But, you know, I I, I do want to see it. I'm very intrigued to see where they're going with Harley and how they introduce Black Canary and Huntress. I've always liked Black Mask. So, you know, I, I, I have interest in this. And this most recent trailer, I'm really digging it. 
I'm really digging it because stylistically speaking, it looks like we're going to be getting into Harley's head quite a bit. You know, it looks like we're going to be playing with the idea of fantasy, where we're going to see things on screen that aren't actually happening. There are things that are happening inside of Harley's head, things that no other character sees or experiences, but we're, you know, we're following this story through her point of view. For me, the first thing that sort of hits the nail on the head with that is that shot where, you know, early on where she says that she she left Mr. J, where she, you know, separates herself from Joker and you see her dive out of the truck and the truck, you know, explodes into ace chemicals and there's fireworks and she's walking away and all this sort of stuff. And at first, you know, the first time you look at it, you might be tempted to take it literally because, you know, she's, she's, you know, she's describing it as something that happened and you're being assigned visuals. She jumps out of a truck, Joker's apparently in it, it explodes, poetically, it's Ace Chemicals, which is where they were both, quote unquote, sort of created. And, you know, we know this movie is about her breaking up with Joker. So the first time you see it, you might think, oh, boy, did she try to kill him? Is that what it's about? But then when you go back and look at it again, it's so colorful. It's so hyper-stylized, and as she walks away, there's literal fireworks going off in the background. And I, I, you know, that to me says that that's not a literal thing that happened to her. She didn't actually send Joker in a truck into an explosive death, but, you know, symbolically speaking, that is what she did. And we, I guess we're going to see her symbolically do stuff like that, because another example of that would be like yeah, we keep seeing these homages to her dancing around in a pink dress and it's an homage to Marilyn Monroe. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. And we also know that there seems to be, you know, there's like a diamond subplot where, uh, you know, a diamond has been stolen from Black Mask and, you know, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, there's no reason to think that Harley Quinn is going to literally put on a pink gown and dance with a bunch of men in tuxedos and, you know, and perform like that. So again, we're getting into Harley's head this time. And I'm curious to see how much Kathy Ann plays with that. You know, is there going to be stuff like, you know, where you're halfway into a scene and then you realize, oh no, this is all just something she's thinking about. Or is it going to be very obvious when Harley's sort of daydreaming and we're seeing some of the crazy things inside of that psychotic mind of hers? I always enjoy stuff like that. And I feel like a character like Harley Quinn and the way that Margot Robbie plays her, you know, it opens itself, it invites itself to a lot of fun by playing with the idea of what is fantasy, what is reality, and what about the fantasy tells us how Harley feels about this situation or about these characters. So, you know, I, I always kind of tend to enjoy when series and movies sort of, you know, play with what's real and what's just in our star's head. And it looks like Birds of Prey is going to be doing a little bit of that. Uh, also, you know, I, I think it's interesting to note that stylistically speaking, uh, this trailer, and I feel like a lot of the Birds of Prey stuff we've seen so far is pretty close in in design and aesthetic and even in tone to Suicide Squad, which of course is notable because you know a lot of a lot of people you know the the, the kind of like the the common theory or the word on the street is that DC is sort of like trying to reboot itself and move way move away from what happened in 2016. But I got to tell you, looking at Birds of Prey, it's not that different from the marketing we saw for Suicide Squad. 
down to having like a sort of comedic offbeat song to offset things. Remember, you know, Suicide Squad had Ballroom Blitz and Bohemian Rhapsody. And this has that Bjork song. Uh, I believe it's called Silent or Quiet, something like that. By the way, my wife's going to be super excited about that because she grew up on 90s alternative stuff. And she she loves to play her uh, 90s alternative playlist here in the house. And on that is that Bjork song, and she always sings her head off to it. So when I show her this trailer later today, I have a feeling she's going to lose her mind that her favorite Bjork song is in there. But the point is this, you know, with the bright sort of almost like pastel-y color palette, using the sort of comedic pop rock song to offset the mayhem you're seeing on screen, that is still keeping some of that like, you know, grungy, dirty, yet colorful aesthetic that David Ayer introduced in Suicide Squad. You know, it's notable that Birds of Prey seems to be sort of building upon that a great deal. You know, it's not like they're going a complete 180 in terms of style and presentation. This really does seem like a natural extension of the seeds that were planted in Suicide Squad. And I guess I'm only mentioning this because, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that despite what us fanboys and fangirls have been discussing for years, despite all of the narratives out there, you know, the folks marketing this movie don't seem to have a problem making you think of Suicide Squad as they do it. So perhaps there's not quite as much uh, embarrassment and shame about the things that came out in 2016 as some would have you think. So I just found that to be kind of little interesting little tidbit, but yeah, so you know, we got the Birds of Pre, the Birds of Pre, Birds of Prey trailer today, and I feel like so far so good. Everything I've seen about this movie has me intrigued by it. The cast looks great. We got our first real look at Black Mask, which was a biggie. We got to see the Canary. You know, we got to see Black Canary kicking some ass. We got to hear Huntress talk a little bit. And, you know, overall, we got a little bit more for each character this time around. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. Bring it on. This is one that I, I probably won't have a problem seeing as a member of the press. You know, something I've been talking about on Twitter is that there are certain movies that I don't, you know, I actually turned down invitations for. Like, I was shocked to have actually turned down an invitation to see Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker last month. But in, a, in, a, in actuality, you know, in all honesty, you know, when, when it's a movie of that size and scale, I like to see it around real fans, on opening night, surrounded by fans. But with Birds of Prey, I'm not necessarily looking for the big crowd experience. I just want to see the movie. And I don't know what the big crowd experience is going to be like. I honestly, I'm having a hard trouble. I'm having a hard time getting a read on whether or not general audiences are going to give a crap about this movie. But, you know, that sounds like I'm taking a dig at it. I'm not. But, yeah, I have a feeling that this one, if, if, if I get an invite for this one, I'm going to see this as early as possible and tell you all that I can about it. And sorry that my heater... And the background is going off and making all these clicky noises. But, you know, until your boy can afford to record this show in a soundproof studio, we're just going to have to continue to deal with these little background noises. So I'm sorry about that. But 
While we're talking DC news, you know, moving on from the Birds of Prey trailer, I want to talk about some information that hit the web yesterday that's got a lot of you talking. And it has to do with The Flash. It has to do with some fresh comments from director Andy Muschietti, who, you know, right now is riding a huge wave of success thanks to It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. And now he's going to be directing The Flash, written by Christina Hodson, who I spoke about last week. And according to that hashtag show, at a recent Q&A, he was asked if, they were, if the plan was still to make it an adaptation of Flashpoint. And according to that hashtag show, that which transcribed his answer, he referred to it, he said... Um, <clears throat> that the project will be a different version of Flashpoint than you're expecting. So that's kind of a biggie, right? Because Flashpoint is a, you know, a storyline that we first heard about, cinematically speaking, a couple of years ago, shortly after 2016, after BVS came out, during Comic-Con of 2016, suddenly the Flash film turned into a Flashpoint film. And the logic at the time was, you know, BVS had kind of come out and underperformed at the box office and been a critical, you know, bomb. But in terms of box office, it did pretty well, even though there were some troubling uh, trends with that movie. And by and large, the fandom, you know, the by giving it a, a, a B cinema score, they kind of shrugged at it. A B is a very ho-hum cinema score to give a film. So the thought at the time was that Flashpoint was was had become the plan so that the, they could use the the time traveling elements of that film to kind of sort of reboot the DCEU. You know at, at the time there had been success the year prior with or might maybe at that point it had been 2 years whatever year it was that X-Men Days of Future Past came out, which included time, you know, a lot of time jumping and was a way for, for Fox to sort of reset the continuity on their X-Men franchise. There was thought that Flashpoint would serve the same purpose, that by having the Flash go back in time and make certain tweaks, it would, you know, kind of help stabilize the, the rest of DC's cinematic slate because they were going to try to stylistically move away from stuff like BVS and stuff like Suicide Squad. And that was the initial thought. And then what happened? Eventually, it, be, it went back to being a Flash movie. But now we're hearing it might be, it's still going to be an adaptation of Flashpoint. So now with this frame of mind in mind, in the, in the current landscape that we're in, what does a Flashpoint movie really succeed in doing? And it's hard to tell. It's hard to say because I do think that it's too big of a story to serve as an origin, as a first ever Flash movie. I think it's awful big to start on Flashpoint. It would have been like starting Superman on the death of Superman, which I guess you can kind of say they indirectly did. But, you know, I, I feel like that's a very big, ambitious story. That's why I wonder, you know, when we look at Machetti's comment, assuming it was transcribed correctly and, and, you know, and that hashtag show didn't mishear anything, you know, it doesn't seem like there's video of this or audio of this. It's just we have to take them at their word that they asked this and that he responded this way. Um, 
But assuming that Machietti is, you know, actually trying to adapt Flashpoint, what he says is it's a different version of Flashpoint than you're expecting. So on the one hand, that makes it sound like, oh, wow, we're doing Flashpoint. But on the other, by emphasizing the different version of it, it also calls to mind the idea that it is an adaptation, but not a very literal one. You know, just like over on the other side of the spectrum, when Marvel did Civil War, that wasn't really a full-on adaptation of Civil War. In fact, you know, it, it, it bore very little resemblance to the actual comic book Civil War. Um, and there have been other examples of films like this that sort of, you know, mention certain storylines. Even in, oh, back, you know, referring to the X-Men, you know, Days of Future Past was not an exact adaptation. I think it was a little closer than Civil War was, but it wasn't like a, a note-for-note adaptation. So really, he could just be talking about borrowing some elements from Flashpoint. You know, for all we know, it could just simply be, you know, th this is a story where Barry discovers he could time travel, and when he goes back to try to save his mother, he ends up creating more of a mess and, 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 than he bargained for. And it's going to be that kind of a story. You know, we really don't know how much of it he's going to adapt. So really, we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. Though, that's never stopped us before. So join me in a little bit of a rabbit hole here, will you? Because if it is more of a full-fledged Flashpoint uh, adaptation where the, you know, the impact of his time travel has wide-ranging effects on, on all of the entire DC landscape, you know, it, it gets my mind racing a little bit because <clears throat> maybe there is a little bit of, um, of a sense of let's use this movie to mess with the continuity a little bit. So, and, and, and the reason I think that is because, you know, there's a topic I've been talking about a lot so far this year on the podcast and, and, and towards the end of last year, which is, you know, DC has this very unique situation on the horizon where they've recast Batman and kind of set him off into his own universe and given Matt Reeves the, the leeway to kind of create without being hamstrung by other creative decisions and without having to worry about what other DC directors are doing. And yet, all the other core members of the Justice League are still in play. It's this odd thing, right? Where Wonder Woman has a movie coming out in a few months now. We have Birds of Prey, which is connected to Suicide Squad, and which he talks about Bruce Wayne, and she talk, you know, we know that this is a Batman-centric thing. You know, who's the Batman that she interacted with in Suicide Squad? It was Ben Affleck's Batman. But either way, Birds of Prey is an offshoot of the original DCEU blueprint, as will be Wonder Woman 1984 by, by continuing on with Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Here we are with that same Wonder Woman, you know, having another story told, which, by the way, you know, I get the sense that they're going to be tweaking with the canon there, just, just like they did last time where Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns and Gal Gadot all kind of showed a willingness to break beyond the canon bits that had been established for her in Batman v Superman. 
you know, I think Wonder Woman 1984 is going to continue down that path also, just kind of totally blazing a whole new trail, so to speak, for the character that doesn't really line up with the, you know, she she's avoided humanity for a hundred years and all that sort of stuff. This is clearly going to fly in the face of that, but the point still remains that when we first got to meet this Wonder Woman, she was standing beside Henry Cavill's Superman and Ben Affleck's Batman, the most iconic visual in superhero cinema, or one of them, one of the most iconic visuals of the last you know, th four years is her standing between the two of them after blocking Doomsday's fire blast. That shot of the Trinity is still, you know, it's a major moment. We, regardless of, of what people ultimately thought of BVS and what became of Justice League, it's an iconic, well-known moment. So Gal Gadot will forever be inexorably tied to Batfleck and Henry Cavill's Man of Steel. It just, it is what it is. So continuing down this path, you know, we got Birds of Prey, which is an offshoot of the DCEU. We got Wonder Woman 1984, which is an offshoot of the DCEU. Next year, we got The Suicide Squad coming out, which is an offshoot of the DCEU. We had Aquaman come out at the end of 2018, which obviously was also an offshoot of the DCEU. So really, like, 95% of what had been built in 2016 is still getting sequel treatment or spin-off treatment, you know? So when you look at it that way, you know, originally Flashpoint was going to hope was going to try to, you know, quote unquote reboot the entire thing. Now it has a much less pressing need cuz all that really has to try and do is explain a way for Robert Pattinson's Batman to get involved with these other Justice League characters. Because, listen, let's not kid ourselves. You know, I've spoken a lot on this show, and there's been a lot of general, you know, uh, lip service to this idea of DC is no longer rushing, DC is not trying, is trying to kind of disconnect things rather than interconnect things like they were early on. You know, despite all of that, you know, let's not kid ourselves. They want another Justice League type movie. They want to see the DC brand perform at the level of other brands out there. So on some level, they want to create at least somewhat of a playing field where Robert Pattinson's Batman and these other Justice League characters can interact. Because remember, he still remains the only one who's been officially replaced. Because even aside from whether or not Henry Cavill returns, and despite the, you know, and, and regardless of whether or not we see Ray Fisher's cyborg, uh, you know, in any of these films again, you know, until they're officially recast and replaced, in the minds of the general public, those are still the characters that are active. You know, those are still the versions of these characters that when they go and see Birds of Prey or Suicide Squad and they see Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn and all that sort of stuff, and eventually when they see Ezra Miller's Flash, you know, they're going to picture them alongside Ray Fisher's Cyborg and Henry Cavill's Superman. So even with those guys, not, you know, kind of up in the air whether or not we're seeing them again, it, it still you know, doesn't change the fact that the only one that's been officially recast 
is Batman. And when you think about that, there has to be, I mean, there doesn't have to be, but if we're going down this rabbit hole, that flashpoint is going to do, you know, is going to do some kind of trickery with the continuity that kind of helps explain some of the changes of the last few years. Um, you know, it does kind of create this possibility for there being another Batman, or at the very least, you know, a way to bring this other Batman and act like he can coexist in the right scenario. He can coexist with Ezra Miller's Batman and Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman and, you know, one day perhaps come face to face with Harley Quinn and her hyena named Bruce. You know, it, 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 the Flashpoint movie can absolutely help smooth those edges out depending on the tone and how they do it. You know, and it would be fascinating, by the way. I just got, it got me thinking, like, it would be cool if they could somehow use unused footage from, let's say, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, or perhaps unused footage from BVS, to try to have Ben Affleck's Batman factor in a little bit to Flashpoint. And then, you know, and if you have that in there, and then when, when, when Ezra is done fixing, Ezra, when Barry is done fixing things and whatnot, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you find a way to act like Batman just looks differently now, and now it's Robert Pattinson. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little too cutesy, and I'm overthinking this stuff too much. But it got me, you know, if, you know Batman's a big part of the Flashpoint story. I guess that's why I thought of it. Because Batman, you know, everyone always talks about what happens in Flashpoint to Batman, about how Thomas Wayne becomes Batman and the mom, be, you know, Martha becomes the Joker and this whole thing. You know, so there's almost like an expectation that Batman will factor in somehow whenever you evoke the name Flashpoint. And with that in mind, you know, it just got me wondering if they're going to try to find a way to get the Batman that Ezra Miller is most associated with to factor into this movie, even if it's just a way to explain why from now on he looks different. You know, I, I think there's there's got to be some sort of way to connect the two. If, if we're trying to creatively, you know, kind of weave a tapestry here, you know, there's, there can be a way to do it. And I honestly think Warner Brothers and DC have been trying to do it for years, because look, folks, the Batman has begun filming, which is amazing, by the way, and I'm going to be talking about that in a couple minutes, just how exciting it is to finally have this movie begin principal photography. But before I get into that, you know, let's look at the calendar, ladies and gentlemen, because right now it is January of 2020, and Matt Reeves got this job in February of 2017. That is three years, and in Hollywood years, that's a long time. You know, can you think about a time when a major blockbuster was signed on, you know, was created with a, you know, classic character like Batman and a name director like Matt Reeves. And can you, when's the last time you heard about a director signing on for a movie like that and then taking three years to start filming it? You know, there were some bumps in the road on the way here. We weren't made privy to all of them because Warner Brothers actually ended up doing a pretty good job about holding off, you know, cutting down on the leaks 
post-2016 and post, uh, you know, some of what happened there with Justice League. You know, they, they've gotten uh, reasonably better at making sure that certain information doesn't enter the public sphere. But folks, three years is a very long time for a director to finally start filming a movie of this magnitude about a character of this much importance to the overall pop culture landscape. And while yes, as I discussed on my appearance last week on the Vigilante 1939 podcast, which you should totally check out, because it was a deep dive on Superman, Man of Steel 2, uh, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. It was a very good conversation. So if you haven't yet heard it, I strongly recommend you check out my appearance on the Vigilante 1939. You know, while I discussed on that, that yes, I think part of the reason it's taken this long for the Batman to film is that they wanted to create a little bit of separation between this new take on Batman and the take on Batman that had kind of been somewhat polarizing these last few years. While I definitely believe that, I also think part of the reason was some creative infighting. Because listen, when Matt Reeves got the job in February of 2017, he did it at a time when Warner Brothers was feeling extremely vulnerable. You know, Warner Brothers and DC were in a tough spot at the time because 2016 didn't necessarily go according to plan and Ben Affleck at this point was basically done. He didn't want to do it anymore. He dropped out of writing and directing Batman in January of 2017, almost exactly three years ago. The headlines arrived that Ben Affleck was out, which by the way, was like it felt like a personal crazy milestone for me because I had been covering the fact that Affleck seemed to be on the outs. You know, I'd been writing about that and podcasting about that over at Latino Review for a while. And I'll never forget when the news broke that he's actually gone. I'm like, whoa, there it is. There it is. Wow. But I digress. You know, he left the part three years ago. And at a time when both of their major releases in 2016 didn't quite go according to plan in terms of fan and critical response and in terms of BVS not doing all that they'd hoped at the box office, you know, they were in a tough spot. So Matt Reeves, if you'll recall too, he pulled the power play. You know, there were the initial talks of him taking over for the Batman in early of February, and then he stepped away at a time when it was supposedly all but a done deal and all they had to do was sign the papers, Reeves publicly stepped away from negotiations, making an already weak, vulnerable DC entertainment look even more like, wow, we can't get anyone to stick around. You know, the, we recently lost a Flash director again. Now Ben Affleck is leaving. There's all these stories about the creative upheaval around Suicide Squad and BVS. Right now we're in a tough spot. So what did they do? They caved. And they gave Reeves what he wanted. Because supposedly the reason that he stepped away from negotiations was because he wanted full creative control. He wanted full autonomy. He didn't want the studio to be able to interfere with his films the way they had interfered with Zack Snyder's film the previous year, the way they'd, they'd interfered with David Ayer's Suicide Squad the previous year. You know, Reeves basically said, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it on my terms. 
And at the time, Warner Brothers was feeling the heat. And they were like, okay, we can't afford to have, you know, Ben Affleck drop out, then Matt Reeves seemingly take the job, but then walk away from negotiations. So let's just, let's give him what he wants. Certainly it can't get any worse. And Affleck doesn't seem, doesn't want to come back anyway. So we may as well let Reeves have a fresh start. And that made a lot of sense at the time. At the time, that made a lot of business sense. But a lot has happened since then. You know, the old regime at Warner Brothers was pretty much, by, by the time a year had passed on Reeves signing his deal, a lot of the power structure at DC had changed. There had been all kinds of changing of the guard. And by the time a year had passed, Walter Hamada was now running the show. And the entire approach to DC on film seemed to be evolving and changing right before our eyes. And you may recall that in the middle of 2018, there's a couple of months into the new DC with Walter Hamada as the sole, you know, shot caller and with Toby Emmerich as kind of his ally on over on the Warner Brothers end of things. You know, within a few months of this new power structure, there had been some reports that Matt Reeves and the studio were having some high-level meetings. Some even characterized this as he was on the verge of leaving the project. You know, I don't think it ever got there, but there were some creative discussions. And I do believe that the, the, the crux of the conversation was this. You know, hey, Matt, we know we gave you full creative autonomy, or I should say, I know that the guy before me offered you full creative autonomy, but is there a way to make sure that this film plays well with the rest of our plans, with the, with the rest of what we're trying to build? Because, you know, you can't have a DC universe without Batman. And I don't know what ultimately came of those discussions. I mean, I guess I do, right? It looks like Reeves got his way and he's continuing to push in his own new, you know, original direction. But all along the way, we've heard all the all of these interesting little rumors. We've gotten little mixed signals. You know, there have been plenty of times before he cast Robert Pattinson, there were times where he was asked point blank about Ben Affleck's Batman being in the film, and he would say yes. You know, and granted, we would eventually learn that a lot of that was public relations because Affleck had already pretty much made it known behind the scenes that he was out. Even before doing the reshoots for Justice League with Joss Whedon, he had already made the decision he was out, and you can pretty much tell that was true just by his performance in the theatrical cut of Justice League. But, you know, there had been some back and forth, right? And there, and, and there was also this rumor of two versions of the script. You know, there was a version of the script that was bookended by old, grovelly, retiring Ben Affleck, where, and, and between those bookends was a story that was primarily done in flashback, and that would be main, you know, Matt Reeves' primary story there, but that it would be bookended and basically act as a prequel to Batfleck. So there was one version of the script, supposedly, that would act as a prequel. And then there was one that didn't include those bookends and really was just its own thing that had no real connection to any of the Batfleck stuff we'd just seen. 
And ultimately, it looks like Reeves, you know, is going with that version of the character. But the reason, you know, I should say a new version of the character. But the reason this is all coming up for me, and the reason I think that Warner Brothers had been trying to convince him, and maybe as recently as early 2019, still trying to convince Reeves to make this a film that can play well with the other Justice League characters that are still in play. You know, I got an eye on some official casting documentation. I got an eye on the official casting grid for the Batman from a few months ago. And it's notable because it, it, it comes with lots of interesting information, lots of very, you know, including stuff we don't know about. Like, for example, when it comes to the role of Commissioner Gordon, yes, we heard in like August of 2019 that Mahershala Ali, before taking the role of Blade with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Mahershala Ali had been in the running for Commissioner Gordon. We heard that in August of 2019. But as per the official casting grid, I even know the date that he passed on the role. On June 27th, 2019, he passed. And then on September 17th of 2019 is when Jeffrey Wright officially signed on and became attached to the role of Commissioner Gordon. So this casting grid includes specifics like that. And when it comes to the role of Batman, here's a very interesting thing about this casting grid, this Warner Brothers casting grid. On February 20th, 2019, do you know who's listed as the top choice for Batman? None other than Army Hammer. And that's a big deal. That's a very big deal because I've always heard that he was the studio's pick that the studio wanted Army Hammer because they felt like he could convincingly be the younger Batflick. He would convincingly be able to pull off a younger Ben Affleck type of Bruce Wayne and Batman so that Matt Reeves' film can be viewed more easily as a prequel to what had come before. And it really would have made perfect sense if you think about it because, you know, what had just happened in the early part of 2019, what were Walter Hamada and the rest of DC Entertainment doing? They were busy counting all of the dollar bills that flew in thanks to Aquaman in December of 2018, leading into 2019. Aquaman single-handedly proved that the DCEU could still be very viable. Because here you had Jason Momoa playing the same Aquaman that we'd glimpsed in BVS, the same Aquaman who had played, you know, a fairly pivotal part in Justice League, a film that, you know, fizzled at the box office, but it didn't flop, it didn't bomb, it made, you know, in the mid 600 millions. But, you know, here you have a film with that Aquaman making a billion bucks right next to a Star Wars movie. So DC suddenly realized maybe we don't have to backpedal quite as much as we thought. Because look, these DCEU characters can still fly. They can still soar. It's what I referred to as the Aquaman effect. 
You know, Aquaman really turned a lot of heads when it landed because it made it, it made the studio realize we don't have to do such a complete 180. We don't have to run away from BVS and Justice League. We just need to entrust these characters to filmmakers, scripters, directors who, you know, can, can put a fresh coat of paint on them and present them in a way that appeals to a larger audience. So with that fresh evidence in mind, it does seem like it would have made a lot of sense for an early 2019 Hamada and company making one last push, one last play to get this Batman movie to fall in line with the other DCEU spinoffs and sequels that were on the way. And ultimately, you know, they lost that fight. And I think that's fascinating because that means that as recently as February of 2019, this Batman film had the possibility of being in continuity with everything else we've seen. And a part of me wonders, you know, if if they are trying to figure out a way to, to fix the continuities or to have this idea of, you know, the DCEU Batman still exists but there's kind of like a multiverse thing going on and the Robert Pattinson Batman exists on a different earth or however it is that they want to try and address this, a part of me wonders, you know, if, if it is true that the studio believed in Hammer as their replacement to Batfleck, wouldn't it be interesting, by the way, as a total side note to everything, if Hammer somehow ends up being the second Batman. I mean, that's one of the reasons I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on this here show, because if they're keeping Miller as Flash, and if they insist on treading on Flashpoint, then it really does stand to reason that there should be a Batman involved somewhere in the Flash's next film, and within the DCEU in general especially when you consider that in Justice League, you know, Barry Allen's whole subplot, the character in general, is introduced and given to us by Bruce Wayne, by Batman. It's, it's Bruce who goes and finds his secret hideout. It's Bruce who convinces him to join the Justice League. It's Bruce who gives him advice on how to be a hero and just save one person at a time and so on and so forth. So in terms of, you know, where people have seen this Flash, they've seen him being mentored and groomed by freaking Batman. So it's like, they're going to have to figure out some way to get a Batman into Flashpoint. And I'm just wondering how they're going to do it, if they're going to do it, or if they're just going to totally sidestep that element of things uh, as we kind of just push forth into this new continuity, into this new sort of Batman-free DC universe that we're heading into, where the where Battenson exists in his own little pocket. But uh, all right, all right, enough of this. Uh, you know the the hypotheticals and the theoreticals of you know where the Batman may fall in in terms of its continuity and whether or not he's DCEU or not. Forget all that. Now let's change gears. Let's talk about how exciting a time it is right now to be a Batman fan. Because, folks, it's happening. 
The Batman starring Robert Pattinson and Colin Farrell and Zoe Kravitz and Paul Dano and Jeffrey Wright and I, I'm probably missing someone, but this this dynamite cast, uh, Andy Serkis, yeah, like uh, this Batman movie that we've been hearing about in some form or another for six years is finally on the way because. You know, the, the, the first time we heard about a movie called The Batman being on the horizon was actually over with my old pals at Latino Review. That was an El Mayimbe scoop. And also Dave Gonzalez fleshed it out as well, that at the time, in the middle of 2014, we had already been hearing over at Latino Review that not only was Ben Affleck going to be in BVS, which was widely known at that point, but that he was going to be writing and directing his own Batman movie called The Batman, which was kind of a unique name at the time. And it's funny to think that here we are six years later, and it's finally happened. But look at all the permutations the project has gone from being, you know, the solo Ben Affleck Batman film that would follow up I guess, Justice League, or how, you know, however it was the original plan was going to go, from that to then becoming this Matt Reeves movie. And then for a time, the Matt Reeves movie being thought of as, well, Affleck's going to be in it, so I guess the Reeves movie is going to just, you know, it, it's going to still be that solo Batman movie we'd heard about. And then slowly but surely realizing that it's completely now its own animal, its own project, its own creative, you know, just its own thing. So in the last six years, you know, it's been quite a ride following all the different rumors and news about will Affleck direct or not? Who's going to be the villain? Oh, Deathstroke is going to be in there. Joe Manganiello was brought in to be the Deathstroke who's going to be the primary antagonist. This is exciting. Then you hear reports that Affleck is writing it and it's going really well and he's actually writing it with Jeff Johns, which is interesting. And then... We find out later on that Chris Terrio has come on and he's done a polish of the script. And then there was a lot of back and forth, which is something I reported on quite heavily, a lot of mixed messaging about the state of the script. There was talks that Ben Affleck's script was coming along really well and that the studio was really digging it. But then two days later in an interview, Affleck would just say, no, there is no script. I don't know what you're talking about. It's, we're still writing about it. We're, we're, we're still figuring it out and I'm not gonna make this until I'm confident in it. But what about two hours ago when people were swearing that you have this dynamite script? Or what about Jay Oliva the following year coming out and saying that it was the best Batman script he'd ever seen? So yeah, it turns out like the journey of this film, you know, there was a lot of this stop and start on the script and how exciting it was going to be. And we started hearing it might be an Arkham movie. And then we heard about the Deathstroke one-on-one -on -one Batfleck sort of dynamic. And that sounded super cool. You know, we, we had a lot of like false hope and false starts 
on what was going to happen with Ben Affleck's Batman movie. And then he freaking dropped out three years ago and put us into this interesting little spot with Matt Reeves and trying to figure out how it all fits and if it all fits. And then finding out that, you know, little by little, we're getting all these castings and character confirmations. The most recent of which was that Colin Farrell will officially be playing Oswald Cobblepot, a.k.a. the Penguin. And here we are with the continued rumors that this film is going to be kind of like the long Halloween and not necessarily an adaptation of it, but still very much follow in that mold of, you know, here's a Batman who's already in action, already, you know, a lot of his villains and the, and the relationships he has with these villains have already been established. So he's probably, we're going to see him interrogating villains. We're going to see him going to their hideouts and questioning them. This, you know, I, I love the idea of having this world that's already fully fleshed out for our Batman to sort of exist in, to be a detective within, to find clues within, to not, you know, spend the whole movie trying to figure out, you know, when does Bruce Wayne become Batman and going through that stuff. It's more, you know, he's already Batman and we're getting plugged into Batman's world. And hopefully it's going to be done and presented in a way that we've never seen before, you know, and so far we've seen set photos, right? And in the set photos, you know, something gets debunked right away. And that is, you know, the period for the film. Because there have been, you know, some interesting rumors that maybe it could take place in the 60s or 70s or there was a lot of fan desire to see if they would actually have the guts to go back to 1939, the year that Batman debuted. Wouldn't it be interesting to give us a Batman detective noir film actually set in the period that gave us Batman in 1939? It was an interesting concept. But folks, the set photos reveal that it is not a period piece. You know, all the, the the vehicles are the giveaway. When you look around at the different cars, the, the, the GCPD patrol cars they've created, and some of the other vehicles in the shot, uh, this film has to be from somewhere in the last 10 to 15 years, at the very least, if not literally in present day, because these cars are all pretty modern looking. So, you know, for those of you who were hoping it would be set 20, 30, years ago, 70 years ago, or even the 90s rumor that we'd heard recently, none of the vehicles in the set photos are 90s or even 90s adjacent. So clearly this, is, this, this thing is going to be set in more or less the present day. And yet there's reason to believe that it's still going to have some interesting stylistic flair. Because despite the cars and everything being looking like, you know, the, the, the set photos look like this could just be any modern day setting. There were some interesting photos that arrived uh, two weeks ago of what looked like a cathedral set and what people were bugging out about, and I'm bugging out about, are those little mini blimps that are floating outside of the cathedral. Now, I don't know if they mean anything at all, but they totally make me think about Batman the Animated Series, right? You know, they had those little blimps in the Gotham, in that, you know, in, in the Batman, the animated series. And listen, that cartoon, I, I've recently rediscovered it. You know, I, I mean, I've always loved it, but I, you know, I, me and, and the spirit of not rewatching things, 
You know, I haven't seen any episode of Batman the Animated Series in like over 20 years, really. Not since they were big in the mid-90s and I was a kid watching them. Ever since, you know, I've never sought them out on YouTube or any other place. I've never bought DVDs or Blu-rays. So literally for 20 years plus, I haven't watched a single episode. And in the last couple of months, I've made a, a new tradition in the house where whenever my kids and I have an extra half hour or so before bedtime, the treat is, hey guys, let's watch Batman. And the kids now fight about which episode we want to watch next based on the titles of the episodes and based on the characters that they center on. Because I'm kind of using the cartoon to really kind of, you know, teach, introduce them to the bat lore to the bat mythology. So I've been kind of handpicking episodes that introduce them to key figures in the Batman mythology. And like, you know, my daughter is obsessed with uh, the Catwoman episodes. And my son is actually, he loves the Clayface two-parter, Feet of Clay, part one and two. Um, and it's just been really cool to kind of make that be like a cool, fun perk, a special thing that they look forward to. I love that my kids my eight and my five-year-old seek me out and go, Dad, can we watch Batman tonight? And, you know, and we and, and I make a big deal out of it because, you know, we only ever do it when my wife's not around. Like right now, you know, she's also an actress and she's rehearsing for a show. So a couple nights a week, I'm home alone with the kids. So, you know, Daddy gets to make a pretty awesome watch list for us. And, uh, you know, we, we, we live it up. We turn out all the lights. We get some snacks. We make, I make some hot chocolate for them. We sit on the couch. I fire up the TV. And off we go to Batman. And, you know, and I make sure we always watch the opening credits so they could hear the epic music and, and see just, you know, get pulled into the world that Paul Dini created with this wonderful Batman cartoon. And... You know, that series, it, it, going looking back on it in hindsight, it really did inform so much of what I've come to know and love as the Batman mythology. It really is like the central pillar in what made me fall in love with Batman as a child. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, I was talking about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, the idea of like my Superman in a lot of ways, you know, that Batman, the Kevin Conroy Batman from Batman the Animated Series, that is my Dark Knight. That is my dude. You know, I loved Michael Keaton. I loved Christian Bale for a time. That voice has not aged well. Uh, I even loved Ben Affleck, you know, in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. You know, I, I, I've dug all kinds of portrayals of the character, but my touchstone, the one that I go back to is like this is the core Batman that you need to understand or that, you know, or, or this is the Batman that as I understand him, it's that one. So to get to experience this now with my kids is really special, but also, you know, I've heard a couple of times, you know, not, not from like sources or anything like that, but I've just, I've heard a few different times that this film may take some cues from the animated series. And if it does, you know, if those little mini blimps are somehow part of uh, part of that, and we're going to get other little touches, that, or, or even if, like, tonally speaking or stylistically speaking, Reeves tries to ape 
some of what Dini did there, oh my God, then we're in, you know, we're in store for a very special Batman movie. And I, I honestly feel like, you know, we're in store for a very special Batman movie no matter what. You know, whether he adapts the animated series or not, you know, it's just, it's very clear that this film is in the hands of a loving filmmaker who's been putting together his dream roster of talent, his dream roster of characters, and now at last he's getting to film it. Now it's getting up in front of cameras. There's no more talks about rewrites. There's no more creative hurdles. There's no more figuring out the budget or the this or the that. It's filming, guys. There's been no delays. Here we are, we're off to the races. The Batman, after six long years, is finally happening, you know, and and I'm hoping that we get a reveal of the suit soon. You know, I, I, I really hope that we get the suit in an official capacity, you know, not as like some leaked set photo, because that would be a bummer. You know, that's something a that DC has typically gotten right, but there have also been some interesting exceptions to that, right? You know, the Shazam last year was an example of rather than giving us a an actual promo image of him in the suit in all of its glory, we got to deal with blurry side shots from the set or that thing where, you know, Zach Levi, Levy, however the hell you pronounce it, Zach is posing next to the poster of him gulping the soda. Like we never actually got the official shot of Shazam. Whereas, you know, for, for Henry Cavill's Superman we did, for Ben Affleck's Batman we did, for Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman we did. And, you know, th there were other, like, you know, fairly official imagery given to us, even of Aquaman, even though it evolved over the years. But in the first, like, Unite the Seven imagery that, that Snyder released, you know, we got to see Aquaman in an official capacity. So I hope we get something official for this, you know, for, for this version of Batman, for Battenson. And, you know, there was an interesting rumor about a week and a half ago about the fact that the, the suit might look like the Bermejo Batman suit. And you know what? I'm kind of cool with that. Because the Bermejo suit, you know, I, I've always liked when the Bat suit looks a little more like armor than it does like regular cloth. And I like the Bermejo suit because it has this like very armor-like mesh quality, kind of like a knight in the Royal Guard would wear. You know, a knight from like, you know, the old days, from King Arthur days would be wearing. You know, it's got this like cool chain link protective mesh. And then it's got, you know, this very textured cloth over it. And then you got the, the, the big chunky utility thing. Like it, to me, it looks like a cool merger between like a real legit tactile bat suit and a stylized comic book suit. And more than anything, I like the, the, the Bermejo bat suit is that it's got this cool chest plate and shoulder plate that looks kind of like the Green Ranger. <laughs> That's not why I like it. But it's got this cool chest plate. And what I like about that is, you know, it makes Batman look bigger. It changes his body form a little bit, just like having all those layers, Will. Having the chain link and then cloth over it. You know, I, I like when the suit is used as part of the disguise. Not just tactile, not just to look cool, but also to make Bruce Wayne physically appear different. 
You know, that's something that right now, you know, it's, it's cool to have all these different incarnations of Batman in my life. Because lately, you know, I've been watching Batman the Animated Series with my kids, but I've also been playing on my own time the Telltale Batman games. And what I like, what one of the many things I like about that Batman story and that Batman continuity is that the suit makes him bigger. And they, and they kind of call attention to that. That Bruce Wayne is actually not a big, strong, strapping dude in this continuity, which is different than the Kevin Conroy Bruce Wayne, the one I grew up on. Here, the Batman is a little smaller, a little bit more meager, a little bit kind of like Robert Pattinson, if you want to look at it a certain way. And yet, when he puts on the suit, there's clearly like lifts in the boots. There's clearly a lot of armor and girth added to him by the suit itself. Then it has this great, you know, um, yeah, uh, robotic or however you want to call it, you know, voice modulator around the cowl and throat that makes his voice appear deeper. But overall, the suit adds to the reason why no one would ever think that Bruce Wayne is Batman. The suit itself is part of the disguise. And I feel like if one were to try to create the Bermejo suit in actuality and then put it on Pattinson, it would have that similar effect. If it has the, the chest plate and the shoulder, uh, you know, the, that whole, the, that very Green Ranger looking shoulder piece that he wears, you know, that would totally make him look bigger and broader and more intimidating. And, the, and having that cool multi-layered, multi-textured suit would make him look thicker and more powerful by comparison to his Bruce Wayne, which may look very much like a common man. So I, I dig the Bermejo Batsuit rumor. I don't know if it's true. You know, I do remember hearing from someone, you know, who works in the costume uh, industry and who had some ears to the ground uh, a while back was that there would be like a leather quality to it. And, you know, so maybe if, if that's true, maybe that, that, that cape is going to be more leathery. And when you look at the, at the cape, you know, when you Google Bermejo's Batsuit, you know, you could see how leather would fit into that, you know, into that visual aesthetic. So I'm just very curious to see how it turns out. I don't really have, you know, I don't have any other information on the Batsuit. But if they did go with like the Bermejo look, then I am all for that. Just like I'm all for it if there's anything like the long Halloween involved, just like I'm all for it if there's anything like Batman the Animated Series involved. You know, it, having any of this stuff in the DNA of this movie makes it a very exciting movie. And in general, you know, it, there have just been so many wonderful interpretations of this character and different ways for me to enjoy him over the years that it's just really exciting and really special to have a Batman movie on the way. And I got to tell you, you know, even though earlier I was trying to make the case for how they can connect this movie to the rest of the DCEU, I got to tell you, at the end of the day, all I want is a great Batman movie. And whether it connects to anything or not, is really kind of beside the point. Because at the end of the day, I want every filmmaker to have the kind of fun and creativity at their disposal that Reeves is having with this Batman movie. 
You know, the way the way Marvel does things, the more producer-driven approach, you know, it, it's always going to make a somewhat safer product. And even beyond that, it's going to make it so that filmmakers, as they sign on for these projects, they're going to be more and more creatively hamstrung by having to adhere to a canon and, and knowing that there's three other movies being released around this one and they're all building to the same overarching story so they can't contradict one another. You know, I when I think about Batman, when I think about all of this stuff that's when I think about how cool Birds of Prey looks, and when I look at how cool the the latest trailer for Wonder Woman 1984 looks, all I can think about is I love seeing these characters handled by filmmakers whose creativities have been unleashed. And it's hard to unleash people if they have to keep track of everyone else's creative decisions and making sure that their film fits in stylistically and visually and tonally to all these other movies. I would rather set you know, people like Matt Reeves off on these different characters and let their imaginations run wild, create, you know, find the, the pieces of this mythology that spoke the most to you growing up and make us a movie that makes you excited as a fan of this character. You know, and it's hard to do that in the producer-driven, more MCU model where someone else is deciding the creative, you know, the, the overall creative landscape for this story that we're telling and pointing everyone in the same direction. You know, that model to me is, not, is nowhere near as exciting as the prospect of what DC could become now. And what DC could become now is a successful version of what the X-Men cinematic universe was trying to do, but, you know, they, they had the plug pulled out and they honestly probably deserved it. Because, remember, the X-Men cinematic universe was much more fluid in the way it approached its characters. Yes, there was ways to connect things and be cute, the same way like in Deadpool 2, they had this interesting kind of crossover to the mainline X-Men cast, and the same way that, you know, First Class was sort of a soft reboot of the franchise, but yet they had to sneak in Hugh Jackman, even though the continuity of everything really doesn't line up in William Stryker's age between X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Days of Future Past is totally different. You know, th there's so many issues that happened in the X-Men franchise that could be explained away by the fact that they just didn't care. They didn't care about making sure that all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed. At the yeah, They were trying to make good movies. And they didn't always succeed, but they were trying to go, well, what story excites us? What's, you know, what movie, what, what story do we want to tell? And regardless of what we said about these characters three movies ago... You know, we want the freedom to re-explore this. You know, th this is the same franchise that boldly gave us Ryan Reynolds rebooted as Deadpool without really trying to explain it and actually using Deadpool's format to make fun of it. You know, the X-Men Cinematic Universe had a really cool, almost like rebellious streak where everything was on its own and it was starting to get exciting. 
Aside from X-Men Apocalypse and X-Men Dark Phoenix, you know, the ma- ironically, the mainline X-Men films are what dragged it into the ground. But if you look at some of the other stuff they were doing around those mainline X-Men films, it was damn exciting. We're talking Deadpool. We're talking Logan. And there was just a new trailer for New Mutants. And remember, New Mutants was going to be part of that same wave of like outside the box, you know, thinking by Fox and the X-Men people. So, at you know, that franchise ultimately had the plug pulled out from under it. But the DC franchise, DC on film, had, there's no threat of the plug being pulled. They're not getting sold to anyone. DC's not going anywhere. Warner Brothers has owned DC since the late 1960s, and that is not changing. So they're going to be able to actually see this through which is they're going to entrust their filmmakers to tell the most exciting stories they can with the characters that they want to tell them with and hopefully just create an atmosphere where the characters can cohabitate. You know, that really seems to be where we're heading. We're not going for an ironclad shared universe. We're not going for a completely disconnected universe. But we're going to, you know, everyone's kind of moving off into their own corners. And, you know, and this is something that, that's been made clear in the past, but it's also been obscured at times, you know. And, and again, as we enter this production now of a Batman film that is set completely outside the parameters of what we've seen so far, you know, it, it's, 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 we're heading into uncharted territory. But I think... There's a way to make all this work, and I hope they do, because this could be very, very exciting. Having Andy, you know, having a guy like Andy Muschietti bring all of his skill to the Flash, without having to worry about. Well, wait a minute. In, in BVS, he had long hair, and he was kind of like a rebel and dirty, and he was in this nightmare sequence. Do I have to try to adhere to that? Because that's not the Barry Allen I want to tell. You know, he can just do what he wants. And they're going to leave just enough wiggle room for the audience to go, okay, that's the same guy. It's it's a little different, but that's the same guy. Which is kind of like how things are in the comics anyway, right? Because in the comics, you know, depending on what, what, what storyline you're reading or, 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 you know, how far back you go in the books, you know, things change all the time. So just like Fox was trying to bring the comic book sort of model to the movie making process where every movie seemed to be a sort of soft reboot on its own where you know one moment you're adapting days of future past and the next moment you're loosely adapting old man logan or you know in the next moment you look at a character like deadpool who would become a laughing stock in origins wolverine and go you know what screw it we're gonna bring back the same actor (laughs) We're going to let him play Deadpool. We're not going to ex- go through some sort of crazy sci-fi thing to explain how this happened, but we're not erasing what happened before. It's just it's just here. You know, they just did it. You know, they had a very sort of brazen outlook because it's it, they seem to crack the code on that. If you build it, 
they will come. As long as the movies are good, audiences are not going to go crazy trying to connect the canon and, and look about, well, this actor was in that one, but the last time we saw this guy, he was doing this. Like, you know, th there is a ton of wiggle room as long as the movie's good, as long as people are engaged by the story and the characters and there's an interesting hook to the story, nobody is going to go crazy about inconsistencies in the canon and in the continuity. So it's it's just unique now, and, and DC is totally doing this, because the movies all look and feel so different from one another. Look at the variety we've gotten in these last couple of years. You know, Aquaman didn't look anything like Joker, right? And uh, Shazam looks nothing like Birds of Prey, and Wonder Woman 1984 doesn't even look like the first Wonder Woman movie. It looks like its own thing entirely. You know, all it's like nothing. It, nothing is bound by uniformity. Nothing is bound by well, it has this brand name on it, so it must look the same. You know, everything feels creatively alive, and if DC can figure out how to do this at a more consistently positive level than Fox managed to do, they're going to have a lot of success with this approach, I feel. And they already have. You know, since going this more outside the box, forget the continuity, let's just let these characters do what they do, since going to that approach, they've had $2 billion movies. You know, they, they haven't had a critical or commercial flop since going to this format. So, so far, so good. And, you know, that's why even if they don't adhere to all of the geeky nonsense I was speaking about earlier in this episode, even if they don't go out of their way to try to explain how Battenson and these other DCEU characters can one day cohabitate, even if they don't do any of that stuff, as a fan... I really think they're on the right track. And that this is the kind of cinematic DC landscape that I would like to see a new Superman film fly from. You know, not a landscape where everything is being meticulously plotted out by one master producer, but one where someone could come in with a phenomenal vision for this character and have all of their, you know, have every tool in their toolkit available to tell the biggest, broadest, most exciting Superman story they possibly can. In this kind of creative environment is where we can get the definitive Superman film. I don't think we could get a the, the definitive Superman movie in a franchise that was being that was being operated the way this one had been when they were trying to be super interconnected like the MCU a few years ago. The current landscape, where someone like a Matt Reeves could come into the office and make a pitch to Hamada of, of a dream Superman movie, and then have DC go, okay, go make it. This is the landscape that's gonna give us those kinds of jaw-dropping movies. This is gonna be the kind of landscape that just like Fox did, where out of nowhere they could surprise you with a Logan or a Deadpool, I hope that we're going to get surprised by a Superman movie one, one of these years 
that's just going to leave everyone with their jaws on the floor. Because Lord knows I've been waiting for one for what feels like ever. But either way, the Batman fan in me right now couldn't be any happier. You know, I'm playing my Telltale games. I'm watching the animated series with my kids. And now the Batman is filming and we're going to start getting some hard answers to questions and theories that have risen up over the years. And so far, we already got, you know, one debunked. It's not a period piece. Let's see what other things that have crept up about this project become either true or false in the months ahead as we find out more and more about Matt Reeves' The Batman, which is officially filming now. Pretty cool times, my friends. So until next week, life is chaos, be kind, adios. <laughs>